and happy new year welcome to film suck it's a podcast for people who are really sick of all the other film podcasts hi happy new year i'm eileen jones i'm a film critic for jacobin magazine and i teach film at uc berkeley i once uh, put together a book of my collected film reviews it was called film suck usa I was making an argument about the rotten state of cinema and what to do, what we could do about it, and nothing changed, of course. So here I am harping on it some more. I'm Evgenia Kovda. I'm a filmmaker and uh, an MFA student at Hondra College in New York. You can hear I'm a Russian, so I'm the one you blame for everything that goes wrong in this country. <laughs> so Eileen and I decided to create this podcast mostly because we wanted to hear ourselves talk about movies with some occasional interruptions from other people. So we'll be getting to talk about new films and old films, art films, genre films, foreign films, Russian films, you know, blockbusters, B-films, documentaries, probably experimental films. Maybe not experimental films. We, we got to draw the line somewhere. Well, we'll see. So there will be regular bi-monthly episodes of Film Suck starting in February. So we'll be having guests on the show too, including professional filmmakers and uh, probably key crew members, some disenchanted academics who think too much about films, and uh, of course, friends of ours who have entertaining opinions. We'll also have um, recurring segments devoted to special areas of film inquiry under such categories as Confessions of a Cinephile, the Hall of Shame, The Honored Dead, Academic Hellscape, J'accuse, What Films Scarred You for Life. Plus, you'll have um, opportunities to send in writing questions, and we're going to call that segment Your 15 Minutes. Great. So, a lot of things to look forward for. So, to... No, so a lot of things Too to look forward to. <laughs> Too far. <laughs> so let's get started with this special New Year's episode of Film Suck. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our bi-monthly podcast through Patreon. So today we're talking about the Coen Brothers, the films by the writer, director, producer, even editor team of Joel and Nathan Cohen. Eileen is something of an expert on Cohen films after teaching a class at Berkeley for many years on them. The Coen brothers are quintessential American storytellers who've been making hugely entertaining, funny, and philosophical films about America for over three decades. Usually they don't like to explain their films and articulate the ideas behind them. Joel said, again, not wanting to actually explain their filmmaking, he said that uh, isn't it better than picking up trash for a living? <laughs> so... We're going to speculate a little bit about what the hell is going on there. Their latest film, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, is currently playing on Netflix. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs is an anthology of six Western tales that seem to follow a train of thought that they've been pursuing many other of their films as well. There are Western elements, of course, in Blood Simple, Fargo, The Big Lebowski, and No Country for Old Men. But this is the first time they've really gone totally Western in their approach. All the tales are presented in an old-fashioned book entitled The Ballad of Buster Scruggs and Other Tales of the American Frontier, which gets opened at the beginning of each tale by showing a colorful illustration from the story and the opening page of, of the text. The shots of the book that keep recurring made me wonder what's the structure of the film is it just a loose collection of tales, or do you think that there is some underlying principle to them all? 
Well, of course, I think there's an underlying principle, although the Coens, um, you know, are happy to make it sound in interviews like it's really just a loose collection of tales. They they really emphasize that they wrote the stories over decades and they strung them together in the chronological order that they wrote them and then went, oh, those hang together pretty good. That's typical of their type of commentary they make on their films. They never, almost, almost never, unless it's a really... Uh, what astute French interviewer that they <laughs> seem to get on with. Um, occasionally they'll get into their work a little more, but that's typically what they say. And the way it was received by critics and just people I talked to, that's exactly how it got received, is people would just talk about what's my favorite of the segments, what's my least favorite. So, you know, I love the, the, the gal that got rattled segment, but I hated Neil Ticket or that kind of thing. Um. I mean, I think just by them being the Coens, and they do very tightly, you know, kind of organized films, um, as well as just the book motif that keeps recurring over and over, is that clearly there to suggest um, there's a principle that's unifying all the tales. Um, you can look at the book cover, and you'll see that there's a dead tree on it, and a and a the the skull of a steer, and that's the illustration. So it's kind of alerting you to every every. Um, one of the segments, whether it's a funny segment or a much more emotionally heavy segment, is going to focus on death, usually violent death, on the frontier. And that makes sense, given you know how Westerns work, what the Western mythology is, how we tend to look at even the American founding, that there's all this death and danger, and we tend to kind of recast it in heroic and ennobling terms. That's interesting, but in their other films as well, there is this almost um, reminiscence of Mark Twain's kind of voice, um, partially because of this exaggerated tall tale quality of the stories. And specifically in the Buster Scruggs, do you think that the Twain's influence is specifically noticeable here? And what about the other main influences that you think they generally have? Well, it's, it certainly seems to me, anyway, I'm a, I'm a big Twain fan, so maybe I'm reading into it, but it certainly seems like the, the kind of tall tale quality of the films where all these fantastical things happen. That's very true of Mark Twain's specialty. He becomes famous with, you know, that story, The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, um, a kind of fantastical tale with, you know, huge Western dialects that are really humorous and comic through exaggeration. It seems like the Coens are all over that. A kind of specific slang of a region that's something they love they seem to be the film american filmmakers the most interested currently by far in the kind of preoccup regional dialect preoccupations that mark twain had they also have a kind of black humor outlook um that mark twain always had and, and that only got darker as he got older so they seem he seems a, a definitely a huge influence I think there are maybe other literary influences. There's a Stephen Crane short story called The Blue Hotel um, that's written, I think, 1895, six, something like that, right around the closing of the frontier. And it's you can really see that in the last segment where they the whole landscape suddenly is lit in blue. That very last one called The Mortal Remains, where we've got you know travelers in a stagecoach that are pretty clearly. Um, discovering that they're already dead, they're on their they're on their journey um, towards some final destination, um, which is post a post death destination gets revealed, and 
and the blue ho they end up at a hotel with that it's blue with blue doors and they as they walk in you know i couldn't help thinking that it seems like a direct quote from the blue hotel by stephen crane which is about western mythology that was already completely current in at the time the frontier was closing it was it was it was a mythologizing that was happening during um, the years we consider the Wild West years. Um, and he's talking about the hotel as a place where a, an Easterner gets snowbound and is just convinced from the the kind of Wild West tales he's been reading and hearing that he's locked in with a bunch of desperados and they're all going to try and kill him. And this becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, suggesting that everybody's absorbed this idea of, of violent death is defining the west so that seems particularly something and i don't know they, they talk about having read a lot to prepare them for the film um and that includes not only literature of the time but it seems pertinent but also you know primary sources like letters diaries that kind of thing they just wanted to get the language kind of absorb the language so they could then work with it you know i think they're big readers um more than people realize and they used to really emphasize that in uh, interviews when people would always be saying, what are your film, you know, your the, the, the filmmakers who inspire you? And of course, they'd always name some. Kubrick, they're big fans. Uh, let's see, Alfred Hitchcock is clearly someone they're constantly quoting and evoking. Um, usually really formal, super formalist filmmakers like they are themselves. But they'd also say, you know, we, we're big readers. Um, so for example, when they were making films in a kind of neo-film noir mode, they would say, we're actually drawing on Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler and James M. Cain. Um, they're our major sources for a lot of what we're working with here. Um, and, you know, they used to love them so much, they'd say there should be statues to them in every American city because they loved the hard-boiled pulp fiction um, handling of language and kind of deadly yet, as they like to say, kind of chipper, <laughs> kind of humorous and oddly upbeat um approach to the american experience so there's a lot of both going on at the very least plus you know supposedly they used to sit in diners and just listen to people talk um and they they are very into i think picking up language from the culture they live in the famous example would be this aggression will not stand delivered by the first <laughs> the first president bush as a kind of declaration of, of war, but said in that horrible, halting, hesitating, weak-sounding way that he did that becomes central to The Big Lebowski. And what about, since we are uh, now talking more about the Buster Scruggs, so the last tale, The, the Mortal Remains that you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, that is seems to be very different from all the previous tales in Buster Scruggs because like, no one really gets killed there, but... All the characters are really already dead in uh -huh, the very beginning. Right. Where do the Cone brothers stand in terms of like the characters there? Because it seems that uh, one of the characters in the tale, uh, or actually two, they were bounty hunters, right? And during their ride, they argued about the meaning of existence and how to define humanity. So do you think Cohen stand with the bounty hunters who are just watching as one of the characters? Sad. <laughs> um... I mean, if they're identifying anywhere, I think they'd they'd probably find it funny to to be like, yeah, to be the as the bounty hunters are calling themselves, grim reapers, harvesters of souls, and also fascinated by just watching 
their passengers who they distract they claim they distract by storytelling <laughs> so that the, they don't realize they're being harvested and that they love to watch their eyes as they try to figure out what's happening to them and it certainly sounds like if you want to get academic and meta <laughs> about it that yeah that that's a kind of stand in for the very the very practice kind of of the Coens. We're taking you somewhere and you probably, it's probably going to involve violent death. <laughs> and you don't know you're, where you're being taken. We know where we're taking you. But I think they, they hate, this is exactly the kind of thing, question that they would never answer and they would hate anyone even speculating about. But I think they kind of counter it with the back cover. The, the, you know, the mortal remains the last tale. It ends, the book closes and that's the end, and you see the final image, and it's a, it's we're looking at the rear end of a horse, um, facing us. So we, in other words, it's a horse's ass image, and you see the horse's head turned around to kind of look quizzically around at us. Um, and they put their end credit, their directing credit, is over the horse's ass, and that I think is both a, a kind of prankish um, attitude toward us, as well as a kind of, of course. You know, naming of themselves is we're among the horses asses who don't know what the hell's going on so we can kind of be both <laughs> we're the people pulling the levers behind the scenes and we're the passengers along with you and that would be very typical of a kind of cone attitude i think they're often considered by people who hate them and there's a bunch of film critics who truly hate their work and have never given them a good review and they tend to always talk about them as, them as cold superior you know, maybe may technically very dazzling in their handling of the medium, but kind of heartless with a lot of contempt for their characters. They have explicitly countered that a number of times, saying, no, we love our characters, but, you know, we also love that we're American idiots and we're desperate and we're struggling <laughs> and, and making a mess of things. And we we love to portray that. And they do. But don't you think, despite the horse ass in the end of that tale, mm -hmm. the bounty hunter who did talk about like liking to watch mm -hmm. the eyes of humans who are trying to make the sense of it all. Mm -hmm. He did superficially that made him look like a, some kind of slightly cheap sort of version of a Mephistophel, like the little mustache. Oh, definitely. And... Oh, he's definitely a devil-like character as the, as the lighting's getting bluer and bluer and more sinister and in this hugely overstated way that is just, I find hilarious in and of itself. It's getting so blue that it's just ridiculous. And his eyes are gleaming and the, the actor's a great actor. I forget his name. He's a British kind of you know, coming right out of, you know, I forget royal shakespearean training and everything else he's great and but yeah certainly they're they're overstating you know there's no way to miss what's happening in this in this tale with this with this guy getting this more and more fanatic and and um alarming gleam in his eye as he as he basically is telling the passengers what's happened to them you know i yeah, it's it's there's a kind of irresistible quality, I guess, to to looking at the the Coens in in this <laughs> somewhat sinister light. <laughs> and then the horse ass, them. and then the horse ass Apollo. <laughs> I think it's perfect, perfect twofer for them. Yeah, that might be the essence of their like outlook. Since the mortal remains tale is the only one where the character is already dead, and mm -hmm. it seems to be nothing grim really happening. Well, in the tale, <laughs> the characters react to it as if it's pretty grim. But yeah, we don't see anyone literally killed. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm getting at. And all the other tales in Buster Scruggs have this horrible, violent, unexpected deaths. Uh, can you talk? And they're really funny deaths too. Some of them. Some but, of them. The early ones. Yeah, are funny. Can you talk about this violence? 
The violence in the Coens and violence and violent death. Yeah, it's it's a signature motif that they have. They have a very distinctive handling of it. There's even a book about it. I forget what it's called exactly, but it's something like Unique Characters of Violence, some awkward title about about their handling of violence in all their films. Um, you know, with probably the 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 murder by wood chipper um in Fargo being the, the signature shocker. Um, but also somehow funny, <laughs> you know, you can see the foot of Steve Buscemi's character being shoved in to the wood chipper that's spraying out blood. So it's both horrifying, but there's something slapstick about the whole thing. Um, that's, you know, one of their typical modes that gets the most attention. They, they do it a lot. I think part, again, of, of why violence and death is so central, not just because it's dramatic to stage and so on. Um, is because, again, it's a big part of American self-conception, and they, they're very much what's-the-American-experience kind of directors. Um, they've even been asked, are you ever going to make films, you know, somewhere else? And then they just say, eh, we're American directors, we live in America, we do American stories, that's how we do. Um, but it seems like, especially because they're so interested in certain American film genres, I would say most interested in film noir and the Western, which are seemingly two opposed conceptions of America and American experience, but they have something in common, this, that there's brutal, sudden death arising out of all of these film scenarios. Um, and that's part of what you see in the film happening, is that more and more it seems like the death that's waiting for the main character is already in the frame, and that you, it's revealed suddenly in a way that makes you realize it was already there. So a good example would be the the minor one, the minor segment with Tom Waits called all what it's called All Gold Canyon, I think, um, where we watch him for ages digging trenches, hunt, panting for gold, hunting for gold that he knows he's convinced is there, and he finally finds it at the very at, at last. And he's in a kind of grave-sized trench when he finds it, and suddenly he's shot in the back, and he, as he falls forward, we see behind him a young claim jumper, jumper dressed all in black. And of course, he, the miner instantly realizes the guy was waiting somewhere, un, unseen, but in the frame with him in this valley for him to finish work. So he could he, he accuses of him that you waited till I did all this work and found it, and then you shoot me in the back. And that kind of scenario keeps recurring until you get to the, the second to last segment, The Gal Who Got Rattled, where it's the harshest death and the death we most hate to see because the, the lead for once, for, for one thing, is a really um, sympathetic character and it's a woman, which is unusual for the Western. Um, and some would say, would point out, unusual for the Coens. And she's this kind of very uneasy, lonely young woman with a hapless failure of a brother who's on this wagon train. And, uh, you know, there's a, I won't, I won't describe it, it's too much of a spoiler, but there's a scene where death is, again, hidden in the frame and then suddenly revealed. There's a, there's a Comanche, I think it is, warrior riding down a small party from the wagon train and but we don't see him we see a horse that looks like there's no rider and all of a sudden as he gets close to the wagon master who's defending the young woman he rears up from the side of the horse and you see that he was in the frame again all the time so there's this eerie quality almost to it that it's inevitable it's in there it's going to happen and in part it's a way of looking at that's the the western narrative can't exist if there isn't a shooting. There must be a high noon showdown. There must be a killing that defines the experience. And the great critic 
Robert Warshow, who wrote, wrote an early essay defend, you know, uh, trying to define the Western, said, for example, that the Western hero is central to the form, but the only thing that keeps him from being totally ridiculous is that he's a killer. He's going to kill someone. That is the climax of the film always. Um, presumably in defense of, you know, the lawful, the right, and the good, even if he himself is not fully a lawful figure, because he's usually straddling the line. But that that's built into the whole genre. That's how we have conceived our kind of second founding on the frontier, is it's got to be these encounters with death over and over. And I could add that, you know, I think they would say that Americans have a particularly <laughs> both like to conceive of ourselves in terms of violence and a kind of deathscape, and yet ha have the worst ability to reckon with the inevitability of death of any people ever. I mean, as you said, Ballad of Buster Scruggs seems to be the most Western out of the, all the Coen brothers' attempts at Western genre films. And yet when I watched it, and especially when it got to the last tale, The Mortal Remains, it really reminded me of the Old Testament where there's no morality, really no justice, and you're on your own and you are either the chosen one, you're chosen by the moody patriarch, Yahweh, mm -hmm. and this way you have luck and good life even if you pillage or kill, or without any particular reason, you're the object of his rage, mm -hmm. and then you perish. Do you think the Jewish background, even mm -hmm. though they never really talk about it, contributed to the way they actually portray Westerns as well? I mean, it's tricky, because again, they they do not cop to this kind of stuff at all. They just do not talk about <laughs> you know, They'll acknowledge the background, but they will never attach it to the kind of ideas um, they might be pursuing or a kind of recurring motif, like the one you just, you know, you kind of just pointed out, this, this extreme traditional religiosity um, that imbues a lot of their films. They, they've done that in a number of films, at least toying with a kind of angel-devil um, signifiers that suggest th that there is this kind of usually quite cruel Judeo-Christian some sort of um, system operating. You know, if you look at, I don't know, Hudsucker Proxy, there's an angel figure and a devil figure controlling the Hudsucker Industries building that by implication controls time and controls the world and everything and as you noticed i didn't even see it but on the hotel doors of of uh in the mortal remains in the hotel doors uh you saw embedded what was it a, a demon image and an angel image something like that oh yeah no it was so on the left door uh there was like an angel definitely a face of an angel and on the right there was a head of the goat wow. but basically devil yeah yeah which I, yeah, I did. That's great. I didn't even notice it. Um, so they like to do gesture at the very least gestures. Of course, a serious man actually takes on being Jewish in a really harrowing way by reenacting the Job tale of affliction by God. That you know, it's apparently that there's a poor poor guy awaiting tenure. His marriage is breaking up, and he's everything bad in the world is happening to him at the same time as it happened to Job. And uh, he keeps going to rabbis. There's a there's a parable-like structure or a folktale-like structure of the visit to three rabbis trying to get any kind of answers for why this is all happening to him. So picking Job, the ultimate, what, uh, um, uh, story of incomprehension. Why should a faithful servant of God like Job be getting, <laughs> be just getting the shit kicked out of him all of a sudden? 
and you know, then there's a, an appearance of God that's very significant for the Coens, where God appears in a whirlwind and says, where were you when I created the heaven and the earth? In other words, puny mortal, what do you know about how things work <laughs> in the cosmos? <laughs> I designed it, and only I know, and you know nothing, so you're job is just you know when i say jump you say how high kind of kind of kind of attitude and they enact that at the end of the series man where you see that there's a hurricane headed right for the boy who's just been bar mitzvahed and as the father at the same time gets a phone call from the doctor that's clearly a death sentence so it, there's no question that cohen's like to evoke the kind of dark grandiosity of our, our being in some perhaps in some sort of horrible system like that the logic of which we don't understand you know there's even references to their belief in uncertainty as the only attitude you can take toward what it is we're in that we don't know what we're in and it's almost like you know job having learned the lesson they now subscribe to that so they love having films that feature the uncertainty principle people talking about it illustrating it with equations and so on and in um the gal that got rattled you hear the billy knapp character he's the the young romantic lead who looks like he's going to marry alice they're talking about their respective faiths one's an episcopalian one's a methodist and billy knapp winds up saying uncertainty is the appropriate response to the world that we're in um we can't we can't even claim to know in any sensible way but there's definitely a sense that cohen's have concocted a world that seems that seems pretty bad it seems bad um and it's almost impossible to thrive in it and we mainly have desperate bumbling schmoes trying trying to achieve something in most of, of their films and failing you know the failed the elaborate crime um attempted and failed that's their favorite plot scenario um every, how everything goes wrong and it's usually human short-sightedness and a kind of human idiocy which they seem to suggest we're all sharing but is has particular qualities in america and yeah bad things are going to happen they also like to kind of toy with a very film noir you know two sides of a coin set of notions of chance versus fate so that's most famously handled with the Anton Chigurh terrifying villain character of No Country for Old Men, where he makes everybody do a coin toss, a ritual coin toss, that's going to decide their fate, whether he shoots them or not, and he claims the coin decides. Um, and he'll talk about the coin, both in terms of obviously chance, you've got a 50-50 chance, and fate, the coin has been coming to you all the years since it was minted, just like your fate has been coming to you and he represents your fate. So he's got this kind of confounding approach to people and he'll always also say something like, if, if the rule that you lived by brought you to this, in other words, a deadly encounter with me, of what use was the rule? So he's also there to give people final moments of utter despair at their own failure, the failure of whatever philosophy they subscribe to before they're probably going to die. So they return to that over and over in all sorts of modes, funny modes, uh, tragic modes, terrifying modes, uh, throughout all of their films. So it's not that they aren't willing to posit a kind of Old Testament bad, which I think they could say is both terrifying and funny, um, but they have other modes of trying to reckon with a with the cosmo with a cruel cosmos that they bring in as well. I mean Carter Burwell, who's their composer, he's been with them from from their very first film. His first film, Blood Simple, was their first film. He's always said that their main attitude toward life is it's terrible because it's funny. 
And it's funny because it's terrible. And he says the only way you can really work with the Coens is you have to be able to kind of share and understand that point of view. And a lot of people don't, but that the people who work tend to work with them over and over really do understand it. it to me, it always uh, seemed peculiar that they tell the stories about the horror and uncertainty with such mastery. And yet they themselves seem to be very normal in the way... <laughs> They would hate me for even going. Oh, no, I do not at all. It's it's a real conundrum. <laughs> but they seem to be this upper middle class, mm -hmm. suburban Jewish kids who had a film career-wise, filmmaking-wise, a very kind of charmed existence. Like their first movie ahead and their whole life before that is very much almost boomer-like prosperity. Mm -hmm. So how would you explain that they so, seem to be normal, well-adjusted And and this is their outlook. <laughs> and this is their outlook yeah. that, I don't know, are they dying from cancer tomorrow? Hopefully not. <laughs> But basically, nothing bad <laughs> ever happened to them. It's true. Among filmmakers, they have had a charmed life that is almost unbelievable. Oh, my God. You know, they're the, yeah, they're the children of you know, academics, as in a serious man, they're by far most kind of implicitly autobiographical film. Um, yeah, their father's, I guess, a, I think he's a math professor. Mother also teaches, teaches, but it's like art or something. Yeah, they're middle class, maybe upper middle class in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. The, the worst thing that happened to them to hear them tell it was how boring and snowbound <laughs> they were in Minnesota, which led them to watching films on TV. Um, you know, the films that I also grew up on that were run under titles such as Movies for a Sunday Afternoon and Million Dollar Movie, horribly cut up by commercials. So you got this kind of movie salad and they ran high, high culture, low culture, every kind of film. And it was in a way a great education if you wanted to break down your high culture, low culture prejudices. Um, but yeah, everything went right for them from the, from the very beginning. They had to raise the money themselves. They literally raised the money from like dentists and lawyers and over of them kind of friends of their parents. <laughs> um, and from the get-go, they had a film festival hit. They got a, an immediate deal. They hang on to create with Circle Films, no longer in existence. They got total creative control from the beginning. That's unheard of. And they've always kept it. I mean, admittedly, they've been smart. They're very disciplined very and that's another part of this well-adjusted thing you know they're so like on time and under budget <laughs> you know that's them and that's how they've always managed to make a profit on even their seemingly least popular films they they never go fully into the red in a way that they can't recover i don't think they ever go into the red in fact um where that comes from is You know, perhaps that's just the, the sheer security of, you know, they weren't striving. Maybe they wouldn't be so interested in a vengeful universe or however, or the mad uncertainty of life if their lives had been more precarious. Maybe those are the very people who are like, that's exactly what I don't want to look at. All this anguish that they show so masterfully. But with a pretty chipper attitude, you know, something that they admire is a kind of bracing quality. I mean, personally, like for me, I'm... I have super depressive tendencies myself, but I'm never depressed by Cohen films ever. I'm never depressed by film noir either. And film noir is about as dark a group of films as ever got made in America, most people would say. But there's a lot, same thing with the Coens. I, I think it's the, the, the form that inspires them the most. There's a lot of humor. There's a lot of style. There's just this sense that looking into the abyss itself is kind of bracing, um, kind of kind of sets you up a little bit, even as you're about to die. Somehow, 
looking, just just deciding I'm going to take on the worst is not a depressing outlook. I have always found, but you know, I'm messed up. So what do I know? A lot of well-adjusted people watch those films and think they're sick. So I don't know what to say about that. I, I didn't mean at all that they're sick or depressing. Oh, not them. I, meant... I mean, people who watch them get that impression because, you know, they're dark, they're violent. I guess I meant completely something else. Do you ever look at it as contrived? Not because how dark and horrible it is. No, it's cheaper, but because of this nature of just that coming out of their imagined universe rather than any real language and real experience. Well, I mean, I don't, I, I think they are referring to real. I mean, I never know what to do with the word contrived. To me, it's certainly true. They're very formal. There's clearly an order and a system and a structure to their films. They're very controlled for people, again, who don't particularly love that mode of filmmaking. Um, again, it's the very much the Hitchcock, the Kubrick. The, everything seems... You can feel the control. You can feel the formal devices at work. You can feel the constructedness. They never make movies where it's like I just... It was like I was looking out a window and I was just watching reality. Um, even though there are scenes where you might kind of forget the constructedness, but it's hard to ignore it. There's always some tour de force montage or wild color scheme or something to remind you filmmakers at work here. Personally, I just, I just love it. That's, that's my favorite type of filmmaking. As soon as I hear that a film is, you know, the actors were allowed to improvise and we just let the camera run to get the real time effect. I'm just like, Oh, Jesus, save me. So contrived, I don't know, especially it's hard for me to, to reconcile that, if you mean in terms of their philosophy. It's hard for me to reconcile that with that constant emphasis on uncertainty. It's always unknowable. You're always positing, like, you know, the opening of A Serious Man is great. There's a little little kind of Jewish folk tale of the old shtetl um, world that they've made up entirely. And it's, and it's, and it's whole message is that, you know, if you, if you see the film, that it seems to be about that there's no way, it's an undecidable thing. One of the characters thinks she's totally got a line on what God would, re would regard as evil. Um, the husband is much more uncertain and, you know, the movie seems to kind of side with the husband. We don't really know what happened there and it's going to go right down the line. You're never going to know what really happened what it meant, what the cosmic arrangement really was. So I think they always find ways to undercut even the suggestion that it, you know, it's it's all decided and preordained or, you know, you know, to use your word, contrived. In the end of that little shtetl episode. Yeah. So the wife sort of kicked the um, kicks the rabbi out that she thinks is a dibuk. Who is actually devil. Yeah. And the husband is like, yeah, but he might just be a nice rabbi that we invited to come in. And, and they make all the evidence undecidable. At first, he doesn't bleed when she stabs him, but then he slowly starts bleeding. You know, you, it's, it's, it's very hard to decide what happens. Very deliberately hard to decide because the same uncertainty is what's going to get passed down to poor Larry Gopnik, who's the 1960s guy that we're going to see being treated as a kind of Job figure. And he's never going to know. But death, for Co yeah. the Coens in that film, death is coming. In other words, the end is coming at you. It's already in the image. And again, they shoot the, tor the tornado that's coming. It's blocked by a student. And so that the boy who's looking at it can't see it. And then, it, you know, and then something happens that allows him. And suddenly you reveal what's already in the image, which is the destroying whirlwind is coming for us. And, you know, the Coens really like to deal with, like, 
characters who jabber endlessly and seemingly pointlessly and kind of yammer and have tons of ideas about how everything works while they bumble along and make all these mistakes um and they're never really being quiet and paying attention to the perhaps very short length of your life and how to plan ahead for you know contingency and all of that stuff that tends to be absent in you know characters like Jerry Lundegaard in Fargo is probably the poster boy for being unable to look ahead at what is very likely to go wrong in his whole plan. Yeah, that's true. Okay, I think this will allow us to segue into the beginning of Gone Brothers film. Okay. So it's a common knowledge that Ethan Cohen, the younger of the brothers, he has a degree in philosophy from Princeton. And uh, he wrote his um, undergraduate thesis on Wittgenstein. I've never read it. I, didn't, I couldn't get hold of it online. But it seems that definitely philosophy really informed his way of thinking and writing. And uh, they clearly neither Joel nor Ethan are some idiot genius savants mm-hmm. and have no idea what they actually say and, or mean. Do you think... Um, You'll try to define their philosophy of filmmaking. Which is terrifying to even contemplate, right? To define. What could you deduce from just watching films? Let me start. I do. I have read a few quotes. I had, I had the same trouble in getting his, uh, his thesis. I tried to get it myself. And I don't know if they, he stole every copy or why. You should, it should be available somewhere. But, and I have read somewhere, and I'll have to look it up, some quotes from it. And one of them was hilarious because... They were quoting Stanley Cavell and the, the the larky, completely colloquial language that Ethan Cohen was using. And he said, well, old, something like, well, what, what would old Stan say? Old Stan was, you know, just completely, I don't know, joking his way through this thesis if it was if, it, if the whole thing was like that. So, you know, it's interesting to, to go to Stanley Cavell, who's a, 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 a philosopher who's focused, of course, on America Um he actually saw and commented on one Co- one Coen Brothers movie, which is oh, oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? And he wrote a very serious, you know, little section on that on that film. Um, and one of the things he said was the Coens seemed to be engaged in what he called bearing witness to American um, history and the American experience. And of course, his his notion of bearing witness, you know, was complex and difficult. Um, but just that he would he would see that and remark upon that seems suggestive. Plus, I should also add, there's a book that I have often taught, uh, or at least taught parts of, called The Philosophy of the Coen Brothers. And it's a series where philosophers take on film. And every chapter is a different, um, you know, philosopher um, addressing how the Coen's are handling certain philosophical ideas. Not literally, usually, but, you know, how you can see those kinds of ideas being worked through their films. Um, You know, one of them would be what, uh, there was one dealing with Raising Arizona, talking about how America um, operates in the, and this is a quote, optative or aspirational mode that comes from, I think, Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of the American transcendentalists. And they're talking about the idea that, you know, we, we bear this kind of burden that we're supposed to be constantly aspiring and moving up and achieving and defining ourselves and perfecting ourselves. And that the opening scene of the film is this character whose name is um, H.I. or Hi McDonough, and he, he's thrown up against one of those old fashioned um, police lineups. And so we can see how high 
he is measuring on the on that board and then the next th- scene is the prison psychiatrist he's a failed um um, convenience store robbery always gets caught he's completely incompetent at it but he as he likes to huffily say he comes from a long line of outlaws so again you get that grandiose self-conception of you know i've got western real western renegades in my background um the next scene is the psych- the prison psychiatrist basically telling hi and the other prisoners they haven't been measuring up to where a man should be in America, and one of the things they should be doing is marrying and, and having kids, and that's that's the kind of catalyst that you know, leads almost directly to high meeting a woman who's a cop and trying to make a marriage work that seems impossible. So that's one way that, and this author's name is Richard Gilmore, is arguing that from the beginning there's these kind of co- concepts about how, about American ideology uh, and ways of thinking about ourselves that are getting worked really effortlessly through Cohen movies so that you don't kind of catch them at their <laughs> philosophizing usually. You know, the closest to to offering philosophy is you'll get these kind of pop philosophers in the opening, say, the opening of their first movie, um, Blood Simple. It starts with a series of very desolate American landscape shots in, I think it's West Texas, and they're all there's no people in them, but you see these kind of ugly the ugly evidence of of human culture, like a blown out tire on a long desolate highway, that kind of shot. And then you get this voiceover of a very harsh sounding masculine voice saying, and he's comparing. This is comes out in 1984, so he's comparing how supposedly American capitalism as a system works versus Russian communism, and he. He says, well, over there, they have this, 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 you know, this, this way of working that everybody helps everybody else. And that's the theory anyway. But he says, here, you're on your own. Um, and then we go into the rest of the film where we see what it means to, that in America, there's this play, you, everyone's playing a lone hand. Nobody is communicating with each other. There's a fundamental kind of paranoia. Um, there's all this desperate striving and this is going to lead to that inevitable you know violence and violent death that you see in cohen films they echo almost exactly the same opening again the same structure the same combination of that type of image and voiceover in no country for old men image of empty landscape shots of west texas and it turns out to be sheriff bell is doing the voiceover narration but in his case he's talking about the great western lawmen the, the lineage that takes you back um, to the great days of the West, and he wants to think of himself in that lineage, but he can't. He's basically saying he cannot handle, he cannot, as he says, push his chips forward against a kind of crazed violence that he's claiming is new in America. This is a film set in, I don't know what, uh, 80s, I think. 80, 1980. And later he's going to be challenged and told it was always here. This is a crazy country. The country has the devil in it. It's always been harsh and horrible. So at any rate, you get these this kind of, there are philosopher figures who you know most people would never say that's a philosopher. Um, they're usually very kind of harsh working class figures <laughs> who like to talk a lot. But it's funny that the voiceover line in Blood Simple, for instance, right, about everyone being on their own, and that's a kind of theme going through um, many of their other films, right. because they themselves are very much not on their own, and they're <laughs> constantly helping each other out, and just like right. merged into some kind of two-headed being. Do you know how did they make it work? And a lot of people are definitely 
mystified by that. I'm curious if you have some insight into their process, not only writing, because writing together seems sort of at least understandable, but directing and being on set together, because I would think having some of my experiences and making like a short film is like that you have to be the general. Otherwise, I think everything gets confused. So how do they do it together all the time? Yeah, that's, you're absolutely right. I, I actually have worked with a pair of directors um, for, I did for a few years, and it inevitably freaked out the crew. And I was one of the producers on the first of their films, and so many key crew people coming up saying, okay, how is this going to work? Who do I listen to? What if they disagree with each other? I mean, it was a real freak out. Um, sets are so hierarchical, even at the indie level, even at the student level. I mean, <laughs> it's an army, right? There are the troops, there's a general. So how do they do it? If you do anything slightly different, people just can't handle it. And admittedly, it's so high pressure, uh, you know, when you're actually during production, when every minute is costing you money. So that has been a, an ongoing big concern, especially in their early years. They, they faced exactly that. And, you know, people have always been fascinated. They, their number one question that they get is, do you ever fight? <laughs> Joel hates that question. He said he's been asked it for, you know, by now it would be 35 years. But he's always said they never fight. And as far as I can see, everyone who gets interviewed who talks about how they work says it's the most uncanny thing they've ever seen. They, You can ask either one and get the same answer. It's like they've achieved some kind of creative mind meld where they're in complete agreement on almost twin-like agreement <laughs> on what they're looking for so that they can both, you know, write, direct, you know, uh, what do they say about their writing process? You know, I forget which one of them is a better typist. So he types and the other one paces and, and they just effortlessly either work together or just write the scenes separately and trade them. And they, it seems to be a frictionless relationship. Which is, again, bizarre and almost unheard of. Um, and yet, all the testimony from the sets is the same. Uniform. The most calm, the most humorous, the most no stress. Why no stress? Because everyone knows exactly what they're doing. The Coens are fiends for preparation. From their indie, early indie days, they, they started the process of writing the script, and the script stays the script. It's very few changes. That's unusual in Hollywood filmmaking. Um, normally, the rewriting goes on and on and on. It can be an hour before you're going, an actor is supposed to perform. They're getting new pages. It can be really a chaotic process. With the Coens, there's one script. It doesn't change. You learn the script. And after they complete the script, they spend sometimes like six, up to six weeks with J. Todd Anderson, who is their very longtime storyboard artist. Um, they admire him because he draws like what the name is the I'm forgetting the name of a of it's a Mad Magazine artist that they admire, <laughs> and he's great at, at depicting motion, and so they love him. And it's a very long process, and they at least in the early years, I don't know if that's still true though. His name still appears on the credits, so they would do every shot. I mean, that's crazy. That's way beyond anything Hitchcock ever did. He's the most famous for the use of storyboarding as pre-planning, so you're never at a loss. You go out on set and you know exactly. And all the crew, because because of that system, and there are interviews with crew people talking about that, they're like, it's great. You know exactly the coverage they want. So, for example, you might only have to build half a, half a set because you know the other half is never going to be seen. That kind of ability to know exactly what is going to be shot at any given day and have images to look at is just invaluable. For they, I'm sure they must love that because crews hate that uncertainty. I've worked with directors who wouldn't even give you their shot list by the night before, and it's a very unhappy 
experience for everybody because it just leads to all that chaos and hysteria that some people really seem to like about production that I also hated. And they have none of that. It just, I don't think I've ever even heard any scandal stories about it. It just doesn't happen on their sets. Do you think this is partially the reason why basically studios usually let them do whatever the hell they want? They always have final cut and they basically have... I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I think I think the the level of control and discipline and you know the Cohen's always saying the whole key is you know we we make sure we we make a profit even if it's a little one. They're not going to lose on us. We keep our our budgets as low as they can possibly be. We're super disciplined. We're not going to waste anyone's money. We're, our behavior is never the least bit erratic. And so because they established that reputation early when a small company gives them creative control and I think it's a three picture deal, and then they could just, they had an argument to keep that presumably. So they always had, you know, final cut, casting, everything, complete creative control always. And as long as they could reliably do that. And once they get a reputation, they start winning a lot of awards. That means actors want to work with them and will cut their rate and having name actors is money in the bank. More and more, it's just like, yeah, they've got a rep for being great, in some people's minds anyway, great talent and fairly cheap to keep to keep to keep in business. So and as the Coens like to characterize it, they just say, well, you know, they let us play over here in the corner in our sandbox. And that's where we're happy. You know, nobody's worried about how they're going to rip a hole in a studio's budget. That never is going to happen. And yet they're, it's not like they're small budget films. Well, they've gone from, you know, Fargo was $6 million. That's not a lot of money. I mean, even their big budget films are not big compared to what the Hollywood definition. They've never come anywhere close. The closest they ever came to doing a really big budget movie that was a high risk and that failed was Hudsucker Proxy. And that was when Joel Silver, who mainly did big, big, you know, action films, persuaded them they could go mainstream in a bigger way. And he got them $25 million, which at the time that they did it, uh, was was you know pretty pretty big money for them. It was huge money, and the film did very badly. It was the biggest failure they ever had, and they learned their lesson. They said we thought we, they thought it was a really heartwarming Capra esque story that everyone was going to love, and people just absolutely hated it because of course it's got all this sharpness and harshness in it as well, and people just could not stand the mixture, and it did very very badly. But that's the, I think the only time, and then they immediately retrenched and went and did Fargo at an incredibly low budget. And it did gangbusters business. Keep in mind, too, that their big mentor in their early career was Sam Raimi. And Sam Raimi doing Evil Dead. And they, they became friends. Um, and, of course, Joel Cohen's first film job, or early, earliest best-known film job, is he starts as a PA on Evil Dead and then works his way up to assistant editor. And Sam Raimi becomes their kind of model for how to, how to get a film career, um, which is... Do, do genre film. So Sam Raimi does horror. Find a way to re-energize it, kind of reconceive it, make it exciting again in a, in a distinctive way. That's what Evil Dead does. If you've ever seen Evil Dead, you know what a wild trip it is. Um, they even took a shot of, of Sam Raimi's, which they called Sam's Ramacam. That's where you take a board and attach a camera to the middle of it and two PAs, production assistants, run as fast as they can. So you get this low to the ground racing um, camera shot that Sam Raimi invented to do Evil Dead. And so they took that and put it in Blood Simple. They were very tight with him and they regarded him as a model for this is this is how you do it. And they were determined to be 
you know, you know, real filmmakers with real, you know, careers with the real mass audience. Yeah, and they succeeded. Yeah. Which also makes me think, like, Raimi, actually more sophisticated than him. They're great stylists, right? So they do play a lot, as you say, with the classic Hollywood genres, Western film noir, mm -hmm. scribble comedy. But they sort of subvert them and yet preserve the general structure of the genres. I mean, it is sometimes even hard to tell when they're sincere or satirical. Mm -hmm. So what do you think they're, besides whatever, wanting to have a career, so right. what do you think their obsession with genre is? And also why a lot of times genre has been looked down upon by serious cinephiles? Well, if I take the, the last one first, I mean, genre is formulaic. It literally is a set of conventions, so, you know, of plot and character and um, style, iconography and so on, that gets repeated, of course, with each each iteration has has to have changes you, so each one is sort of the same but different and of course you can get a lot of hack filmmaking you get a lot of when it, in the heyday of hollywood when you know god they just ground out i don't know they were making 600 films a year 100 might have been westerns i mean in the in the heyday of the western I, so you can imagine how much direct you got and how that could lower the you know, the reputation of genres as opposed to the more precious often more prestigious more high budget um, you know, kind of films designed for awards, films that are supposed to have artistic merit. So there's that. It's a popular form that's meant to be in response to an audience that wants more of it. That alone, just be because it's <laughs> because it's designed to be a, a kind of mass form that is pleasing to a perhaps non-discriminating public. That also doesn't um, help the reputation of genre films. I think that's probably the, what exactly the Coens love about it. If you can take, you feel you can sort of take for granted that they're very, very interested in how Americans see themselves, account for themselves in popular forms, which I think you can just looking at their work. Genre is central to it. A genre only works, in other words, it's only successful and continues to be made as long as the public is invested in it. It's it's a it's a it is somehow a popular fantasy. It's addressing something that the public cares about. So it's an interesting way to study any culture to look at their genres, some of which are completely like domestic and don't travel. So an example would be like I don't know. Japanese salaryman comedies. We don't have anything like that here. Um, it's, it's specific to that culture, but samurai films traveled like gangbusters and even overlapped with American Westerns in American you know, remakes of um, things like Seven Samurai, so Magnificent Seven is a famous example. Um, so in America, the Western is has often been talked about as the ultimate genre. It's how we kind of reconceive ourselves, especially a kind of second founding of America. Notice how the Revolutionary War is almost never <laughs> almost never put on film. You get the Civil War, but the by far the most, which was you get a popular series of films out of that, but the most popular way of Americans conceiving themselves in genre in film, um, at least from the 1910s through the 1960s, that's, that's the Western. So you seem to kind of go right to the heart of some sort of way that we think about ourselves or want to think about ourselves um, um, in that genre. Seemingly an opposed genre, which is probably even more the genre the Coens go to over and over is film noir, and most often they combine the two. Um, so that even though they seem to be opposed, the Western is all about wide open, unsettled land and the titanic 
you know, confident, heroic masculinity, uh, the Western hero who dominates that landscape and also represents a kind of idealized figure of the, the human being you get out of the grandeur of the landscape. Um, that's versus the closed labyrinthian urban landscapes of film noir with their troubled anti-heroes who have weaknesses and paranoia and are maladjusted and all the rest of it. Um, so you seem to have two opposed things that get crashed together in the in the very troubled post-war post-World War II American world. And the Coens are especially at home in that area. Again, that's no country, that's uh, Fargo. That's mm -hmm. elements of Big Lebowski, even though it's very funny. Um, they, they, Blood Simple is that. So they come back to those two over and over again as somehow at a center of a popular imagination about America in America. And it seems to feed their whole mode of filmmaking more than anything else. Also, do you think so because of their attachment to the genre, the specific genres you just mentioned, there are female characters in a certain way as well, which is like within the formula of Western and Noir genre. Well, they do interesting things, even though they, they, don't, they don't populate their films with women nearly as much. That's often a criticism. Um, in my classes, it never fails to come up. Right? <laughs> it's like, why are there never any female characters, or rather almost all male characters and one female character? You see that over and over. Blood Simple, that's true. Uh, Miller's Crossing, that's true. Often the one female character is a great character. So, you know, Verna in Miller's Crossing is a really tough, really, really great character. But nevertheless, it's always operating in a man's world. What I tend to say to, the, to my students is, but they're not flattering the men. <laughs> I mean, their mode is not, <laughs> God, aren't guys great? <laughs> let's, let's admire masculinity here, even if the form, like the Western, <laughs> tended to do that in its classical mode. They never do that. I mean, the closest they ever get is sorta, sorta, with Sheriff Bell um, in No Country. There's a little more reverence and gravity there, but not a whole lot. <laughs> I mean, there's all sorts of ways of that they've subverted that as well. So they're not doing admiring portraits of masculinity. They're much more in line with uh, with um, film noir in that. It's troubled masculinity trying to grapple with just an impossible um, state of uncertainty, violence, difficulty, cruelty, isolation, and so on. It tends to be their mode. And, you know, you've literally got, you know, they, they love to call their films things like our Hayseed Trilogy or <laughs> American Idiots. You know, <laughs> they do do that because they just think it's part of the American condition and somehow being an American aggravates your tendencies to be a kind of babbling idiot who for whom everything goes wrong um i don't think they're alone in that uh, one of their favorite filmmakers is preston sturgis and he has very you know they draw from him a lot and he has the same take in his comedies <laughs> on masculinity in america <laughs> okay they passed the bagdell test yeah so let me just quickly say though you know they do interesting things though like so if you look at blood simple they've got the character of abby that's played by francis mcdormand She's being con considered by all the men as the kind of femme fatale that you typically find in a film noir. That would mean she's using her sexual wiles to manipulate the men and get what she wants, which is almost always very material. Um, you know, money is almost always what she's after, money. And so they, all the men are 
are more or less at various points talking and thinking about her as that figure, as that master manipulator who's out thinking. It was a threat because she's out thinking them all and they all find her desirable, which messes them all up. And of course, we get the privileged view of Abby and we know she has no fucking idea what's going on. She literally does. She goes to the end. She winds up killing <laughs> Visser, the vicious private detective with, who's wearing a cowboy hat. So that's a Western noir image. She winds up killing him from another room, thinking he's her actually her husband, Marty. She doesn't even know who she's killed or who's after her. So they undercut this whole myth of the femme fatale, even while representing that there's that, that generic slot that she's been shoved into. And that's part of why everyone winds up dead, because they're all misunderstanding everything that's going on. That's a good way to put it. What is interesting to me about Cohen's again is um, their relationship with time. Because of their this genre, in a way, obsession, their movies are frequently right set in the past, mm -hmm. or I guess a version of a present, but it's always like a peculiar present, mm -hmm. unspecific. And the stories can exist in their own, obviously, very controlled universe, some sort of time bubble. So why do you think they want to distance themselves from reality? today almost like historians of or like american myth makers mm -hmm. and they kind of just use the film as a medium do the work of a historian why not ever today yeah it's such a good question because they they even do it in cases where it just seems gratuitous i mean with big lebowski the movie is set mm -hmm. in 1991 and the movie comes out in 1998 so what's it's it's seven years in the past i mean they do these tiny sometimes very very small incremental moves into the past just so they can get into the past it's very interesting i mean there's an exception like i think burn after reading is contemporary it's not like they've never done it but they the closest they ever get to explaining is they, they've talked about how early in their career they talked about how they like a slight remove from both place and time that they're from that is their immediate situation so an example would be yes setting it in somewhere a bit in the past and also locating it in somewhere in the early films especially that they are not familiar with so their first films were in texas and in arizona for example they would pick a specific region but not one that they knew well of course ultimately they wind up going to minnesota and los angeles and other places that they know but initially anyway they seem to regard this as a spur and they'd say well that way you avoid dull <laughs> dull present day reality which is such an odd thing to say but somehow for them it seemed to dull their creative approach um, to ha not to frame it as somehow distant from their current reality. That's a very unusual <laughs> um, impulse, but and it's hard a hard one to explain. But it, I think you're right. It does put you enough at a remove from whatever the scrum of your daily life is to feel like you're get you're you're already getting what you might use the word contrived you're already kind of contriving a con, a, a construct that includes history myth you've got a kind of a somewhat distance focal point on whatever you're looking at and it for some reason it's just creatively important to them and they do it over and over and speaking of burn after reading though i just recently rewatched it and it's um 2008 right. movie and even that is doesn't seem fully wholly located in time, right? Right. It was really weird. In the Russian embassy, mm -hmm. in one of the rooms, I think in the oh, yeah. waiting right. area, there was a portrait of Yeltsin who retired mm -hmm. in year two thousand, which is eight years before right. the the date of the film. But then there is a portrait of Putin too in other in other rooms. So it was super confusing if you really watch it closely. And I think they probably did the similar thing 
with uh, Big Lebowski. Yeah, but, you know, also that same feeling of resonance because, you know, one of the things about, say, The Big Lebowski is each of the main characters is lost, and they're very deliberately characterized as lost in some previous period, or stuck in, rather, I should say. So, of course, mm-hmm. the dude is a, is an is an old hippie. Um, Walter can't can't get himself out of constantly harping on the Vietnam War, um, and Jeffrey Lebowski, the big <laughs> Lebowski, the capitalist, is a complete Reaganite. Um, so you've got this sense of all these, and Donnie, to some small extent, is like a is kind of like a ninety, a sweet, you know, traditional bowler. Perhaps wearing a kind of fifties bowling shirt. So you've got this feeling that every all the men are stuck in some past era that's been strongly defined and allows them to hang on to an identity into whatever crazy thing we are in now. So the past is just haunting the whole, even the bowling alley is a total, I don't know, fifties, early sixties, um, um, blast from the past. So they're, they're, they're really interested in, I think, in the haunting of, of American present with American past and how we're always living out you know, kind of plot scenarios that are associated with our past. And yeah, Burn After Reading, which they made by now, it's like a decade ago, is ridiculously prophetic of American psychosis kind of today. So they also managed to somehow do the kind of the correct prophecy in a way. Uh, Does that surprise you? Oh, God, no. I mean, no. (laughs) I think they have a real bead on certain tendencies. Um, in American culture, and you know that's a that's a gr- that film is a great example of them drawing on a past existing genre, which is the kind of political thriller most associated with the seventies, but combining that with kind of the kind of contemporary Washington awareness. So an example would be one of the inspirations for the character that was played by Frances McDormand called uh, Linda. What is it, Linda Lutsky? They had read somewhere that Linda Tripp, if you remember the. The so-called friend of uh, what's the young woman who wound up being involved with Clinton? Damn, I'm forgetting her name. Uh, Monica, Monica Lewinsky. Lewinsky. That's it. So she's the friend who supposed friend who ratted her out to the press, you know, for money. Basically, she blew blew wide open to so to speak the whole Sexgate Clinton um, scandal. And the the Coens read somewhere that one of her motivations was supposedly that she was trying to fund her plastic surgery. And they just loved that idea <laughs> that that someone's desperate personal desire, you know, that has to do with being personally attractive, would have this profound impact on what's going on, in, you know, in the White House and everything else. And so, using that as an inspiration, they, of course, that's the opening, is Linda Lutsky, you know, seeing a plastic surgeon and finding out the ungodly amount of money it's going to cost, and that motivates her. And you know, she's got a miserable online dating life that she wants to improve, and it just motivates her to toward all of this just mad plotting about a supposed CIA memoir that's you know that's full of quote unquote secret shit <laughs> it's going to be worth a lot of money and that's what brings her to the Russian embassy in the first place to try to sell it and you get all of that madness springs out of this very personal um sort of those sort of loony um desire and, and obsession to have a successful love life in America yeah and like perfect yourself and yes perfect and yourself to rat out your own country <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that's very un uncomrade like. <laughs> it certainly is. <laughs> it right. certainly is. Though she does have that sad, hapless, 
you know, a little comrade who's a true believer, the gym trainer played by Brad Pitt, who's like a, he's the poor little baby duck who gets shot in the face. Uh, again, out of total confusion, everyone's paranoid, everyone everyone thinks something much more grandiose is going on than is actually going on, they all are thinking in terms of government plots, because, you know, again, the, the Coens harp on this, but the suggestion that we tend to leap toward those huge, those huge, grandiose, overly dramatic scenarios to explain who we are and to explain what's going on. And you don't have to go any farther than Russiagate to see that we're doing it. We're reliving a kind of Cold War era that we were, we still regard, shamefully, as a great era because we were, you know, this superpower. And But it was also a horrifying, blacklisting era of insane rampant paranoia. But clearly people are getting some weird kick out of, in defiance of all logic, blaming the Russians <laughs> for everything that's going on, including losing Hillary Clinton the election and so on. Yeah, but as in the movie, who knows, probably some Linda Litsky type is the one who benefits from it all. <laughs> exactly. The, the Coens would love Who knows, they might very well take on Russiagate uh, when it's a few years older yeah. in some way. And yeah, do exactly that type of thing, locate it in some, you know, batshit crazy doomed to fail plan by some American loser who's desperately striving to succeed and it's he's not gonna succeed yeah well but in the movie she's the only one oh that's right succeeded. I forgot about that again she does get the place she gets what she wants in the end yeah right. they paid for her plastic <laughs> surgery right. it's all she wanted <laughs> that's right it's almost classic scenarios right like the screenwriting things like the character has the obstacles overcomes right them. that's very true <laughs> gets what she wants that's right and but the only thing that isn't is that in the end, they have no idea what happened. So the great line by J.K. Simmons is, what did we learn? We learned not to do it again. I don't know what the fuck it was we did. <laughs> this complete circular logic of uh, what just happened and nobody knows, but somehow she got her plastic surgery. So she certainly <laughs> That's the most important. <laughs> yeah. Um, again, so Cohen's not only stay away from today, the mm -hmm. present day in their stories but also they stay away mostly from the personal and uh, the only movie with clear autobiographical elements is a serious mm -hmm. man which is set in their hometown right where right. they really grew up right uh so why do you think they do tend to avoid the personal yeah they hate they hate <laughs> they hate being asked about it um their hatred of being asked joel cohen has said in recent years that the one of the reasons that they came to hate being interviewed by the American press is the American press was always pushing for some personal revelation. And they'd go over and talk to, you know, European press, etc. And they'd be asking very intensely about what the film, what was going on in the film. And so they, they really, mm -hmm. they really hate the mention of it. And they refuse to be, they kind of refuse the traditional notion of the auteur, of being auteurs, because... And, in an interview they talk about, auteurs often are presenting a very almost ostentatiously personal vision of the world or even films based on their personal experiences in very clear ways. And their example was pre-scandal uh, Woody Allen. And they were saying, you know, Woody Allen stars in those films, makes clear that they're in many ways about him, about he, about someone who lives in Manhattan, usually has a profession somehow related to his actual showbiz, various professions, has a girlfriend named Annie Hall, who's actually Diane Keaton. All of that is all based on, you know, Woody Allen's own known autobiographical experience, proclivities, et cetera, et cetera. We should have been warned because there was even him leching after teenage girl in Manhattan. It was all there. So they said, we're explicitly not that. We're not at all interested in self-exploration on film. It's just not something 
not something we care about. So they tended to resist the whole auteur idea on those grounds. And it's true. When, when Serious Man came out, I was just shocked because, I mean, you kind of have to have been following him pretty closely to know that that was, um, I guess, got mentioned in a few reviews that they were actually going to their hometown in Minnesota where they grew up to make the movie. It was about, you know, a family um, with a young boy who was around their age in the 1960s. It was a father who's a professor. Uh, you know, there was a lot of crossover. I even, because I'm an obsessive Cohen reader, caught that the, the name of the sister was Deborah. I think that's right. But at any rate, the only thing they say about her is she's, or one of the few things the Coens ever said about her was, we never got a joke. We never got to know her very well because she was always in the bathroom washing her hair. And they worked that joke into the movie <laughs> about the sister figure in the movie. Um, but otherwise, who knows how much of it is, you know, other than the experience of being Jew Jewish in America in the late 60s, that kind of thing all seems like it's got to have been resonant, but we're guessing. We know very little about them, actually about their personal lives. We just have the appearance of normalcy that we keep talking about. We don't really know. Yeah, I just wanted to say about the whole American mm. media. So I was asking this question, not even being an American, uh -huh. but to me, it was more a question not of them being an auteur who needs to only talk about his own mm. I don't know, imagined universe, but more of them being, I guess, me falling prey to this stereotype of a Jewish kind of writer, oh. filmmaker, artist, who is usually narcissistic self-obsessed and all that and they're clearly and you're allowed to say that right <laughs> i'm allowed, to, allowed say to say it. i'm jewish why not so i can say it uh, and they're clearly not like that at all they're like one of the few jewish actors who do not parade their jewishness in any way and don't even seem to have any neurosis or anything right maybe it's the jewishness cut with, with the midwestern nice which <laughs> good yeah good guess yeah which they've made very clear, you know, they, when they first go to Minnesota, it's for it's for Fargo. And even though they kind of treat it like it's almost a foreign land, you know, they literally had coaches come to help coach people. Um, you know, some of the some of the cast was from there, but they had other people coached into the, you know, Min Minnesota nice behaviors and the accent, which amusingly later Minnesotans, some Minnesotans would try to claim we don't sound like that but if you knew any minnesotans they'd sidle, sidle up to you and say we're exactly like that um we sound just like that um so that's all that's all i can guess as shown in the serious man they've got this conflicting set of influences on them and what came uppermost was this polite reticence about anything too personal which we see very much in the marge character in uh in fargo no matter what's going on, she's always kind of polite. Remember the scene where she's having the <laughs> having the lunch with her former high school friend, the Japanese man who's getting more and more hysterical, <laughs> declaring his love, and she's just desperately sipping her, her Diet Coke or whatever she has <laughs> and trying to figure out how to get out of there. I mean, it's kind of intense embarrassment over human emotion at any level of extreme is, is one of the characteristics that they talked about. Huh, she might be their alter ego then, right? In a way, in, in just in that way, anyway. It's just like, yeah, you do not, you don't explode in public, you don't make a spectacle of yourself kind of thing, yeah. Well, I guess it's a good upbringing, if it taught them that. I, I don't know. <laughs> they got out of Minnesota as fast as they could, that's all I know. So we have to take that for what it's worth. I have another question, I think, more as a foreigner, because it took me a while to actually get into Cohen's films. At first, I discovered, I think, them over a decade ago. But they were 
actually very difficult to understand, mm -hmm. partially because of what you're referring to them as like this quintessential American filmmakers who like explore and have a great ear for different accents and use different cultural allusions, historical allusions that are so rooted in America. And I couldn't really appreciate them at all, I think, back then. When I rewatched finally Big Lebowski after living in Los Angeles for a few years, it was a completely different experience. I could really get into the poetry mm -hmm. of that and uh, because I knew <laughs> kind of, I guess, what California was and, and I knew America much better. Mm -hmm. So what I'm getting at is that even now, their movies seem to be not exactly for export. The language and, and again, the specificity of the place just doesn't translate well despite that they're making these films about human condition well, yeah. at large i'm kind of ranting what's your take on, on it as an american that would have been my definitely my guess i mean i, I just happen to know of course as you mentioned that in, they're very big in europe mm -hmm. and europeans have taken them very seriously mm -hmm. as important filmmakers from early way mm -hmm. early the, or than americans did but outside of there, I'm not actually sure how popular they are. And I would think that the language would be a huge barrier just just from my own experience trying to teach mm -hmm. the class because I'd inevitably have students from all different countries, a number of them wanting to take mm -hmm. the class, and I'd really have to caution them. And I'd say, you got to watch the first film, and we'll even have the subtitles on. Sometimes their language is so dense and convoluted and they do made up slang that mm -hmm. isn't even the real slang even though it'll sound kind of like period slang like what's the rumpus in Miller's Crossing is a made up slang phrase um, that it can be hard even for Americans to get it all the first time you see it so we'd have subtitles and even at that it would just be like the worst struggle because again it's you're right it's so embedded in the culture there's so much cultural referencing there's so much of a context that's about you know, our movie genres, our, our books, our you know, very specific historical periods, historical figures. I mean, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou was just lousy with references to, ex to actual historical figures, but also to literary figures, but also to this, that, and the other thing, to historical events, to everything. And I guess you could always sit back and enjoy the music, but you're going to, you just have to go into Cohen films knowing just language-based, you're going to miss a ton. So I would think it would be it would be that they're hard to export, but I, I really should look that up. I don't know how well they do in other countries outside of, like, Western Europe. But even Western Europe, so you say f the French like them a lot? Well, I had Spanish students in my class, and they said, oh, my God, yeah, we all know they're these are masterpieces. What's wrong with you Americans kind of thing? Because part of what we were studying was the early critical reaction to the Collins, which was not good. I mean, at best, very, very mixed. Um, and, and never, and tending not really on to, I mean, if you read the early reviews of Miller, Miller's Crossing, one of their masterpieces, it's amazing. Yeah. The absolute cavalier disrespect for a film that's just great, 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 and they just can't see it. It's just, they talk about it like it's just another gangster film, but no, kind of a weird, up-its-own-ass meta one in a way that's probably a mistake, and you know, just really dismissive in a way that seems shocking. He was shocked. So at least in a few countries, and you know, there's a the first big, I think, major book of, of criticism came out. It was a it was a joint, I think, Danish German publication on the Coens that took them very seriously and was reading reading like Raising Arizona in intensely political terms and all this stuff way before there was anything in American publishing doing that. Speaking of Miller's Crossing, just popped up in yeah. my head the screenplay obviously co-written by them but there's no mention of 
Dash O'Hammett glass keep. <laughs> yeah, they rip him off so bad. How's it done, by the way? Is it normal? How I've never known. How did they get away with it? To this day, I, all I can think is that they're so completely illiterate in Hollywood that nobody knew. <laughs> they know there's no credit. And it's complete. Americans don't I, read. <laughs> what else can you say? It's the most blatant ripoff I have ever seen. It's a total Dashiell Hammett <laughs> world. So even when it deviates, it's completely Hammett-esque. It's the best interpretation of Hammett, even while it's doing Hammett, that I have ever seen. It's beautiful. It's perfect. But why not credit him? I... I'd have to look it up. Maybe there was a rights thing. Maybe Dashiell Hammett hadn't been dead long enough. You know, there's that, you know, I think it has to be in America. <laughs> I forget what it is. 75 years? Something like that. Maybe. But even at that, I don't know. They're such pranky guys. And especially in those early films, they were constantly joking and playing kind of pranks on people. Like, you know, Fargo is a big prank that everyone knows now but at the time it was solemnly received based on that title card that said it was it was based on a true set of events and saw the solemn interviews with 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 reporters who bought everybody bought it the way it was presented and it was all finally got revealed and they finally it took them a long time before they would admit <laughs> it was all a lie god americans are easy to prank we are we're terribly gullible <laughs> well and their made-up editor <laughs> roderick james <laughs> Oh, Roderick James was nominated was for an nominated Oscar. was nominated for an Oscar for Fargo. And they were thinking of hiring an actor to come out and play him because he's this, he's this really prickly, snobby Brit, upper class Brit, you know, that they've just made up in their head. They even introduce a collection of their early screenplays with, a, with an essay supposedly written by Roderick James in which he's just vicious to them throughout. And of course, they wrote it. But they kept that, they kept that damn hoax going for years so there's some people who still think it's <laughs> who still believe who who like them who still think Roderick James is a real it's a real person so they do I mean they claimed initially there was a reason they they were embarrassed because all the credits all the major credits on um, Blood Simple were theirs <laughs> you know it was everything was by Joel and Eden Cohen they thought it looked ridiculous so they anyway they claimed that's why they made him up but then they just stuck with it I sure just for laughs for years and years and years that is a great prank. Okay, going back to their language, because it mm -hmm. seems so essential, and that's why so hard, what was initially so hard for me to, to understand them. I'm kind of getting surprised in remembering Buster Scruggs, the tales that are arranged as stories in the book. Mm -hmm. How come they are not writing novels? Because it's so much like Mark Twain-like, their universe and their language sometimes, and they're clearly ear for different dialects, and they're put so much care into the character's specific language. And their dialogues sometimes really get to the level of pure poetry. Right, right. How would you explain that if you have any kind of insight? Yeah, their choice. Why go for film? <laughs> yeah, I guess why film? And also another point I wanted to make is that there are, of course, filmmakers that are extremely dialogue-focused, mm -hmm. very verbal, but usually they're not then as precise mm -hmm. and as visual and as inventive in the, the visual realm, but Cohen's oh, about. Right, and, and, and we can say it, they're, they're super colorful and ostentatious in their handling of language in a way that has to draw your attention to it. Just like when they their soundtrack use is so upfront, especially in certain films, that you can't, you can't ignore it as a this huge factor in the film. And, and that's more than is true in most you know, screenplays. So, you know, they, they kind of fight to a draw because they're also so colorful and so big with their visual flourishes. Um, but yeah, there's no getting around that they have this 
kind of literary <laughs> side that is you you have to reckon with. And it, and it is true. It's not that well known. Ethan, you know, writes short stories. I think he's got a collection called The Drunk Driver Has the Right of Way. Um, he was part of a, he's done play, at least a one one-act play, maybe more as part of a collection of one-act plays. Um, you know, he, so he does on the side lesser known kind of literary works, but they're very Cohen, very, very in keeping with the Cohen style. Um, when you read them, it's like, wow, well, <laughs> you know, almost same diff because, you know, it's so, it looks, it reads so much like what could go into a Cohen script. So it reads like a script more Well, so. it's just a heavy on really colorful dialogue, very colorful, very um, intense and specifically realized outlandish characters, you know, all that kind of thing that we, tends to be very, very, very violent tales. Often they're very kind of hard-boiled Pulp Fiction-esque tales or very comical, darkly comical tales. So kind of what you'd expect, irreverent, all that. I mean, I just have to assume that they've been, that somehow films got got the edge over over literary they were both bookish and film mad and that somehow you know they talk about their childhoods where they got a some super 8 camera or something and they made little films for themselves you know and sometimes they'd remake favorite terrible hollywood jungle pictures and terrible other genre films with some friend of theirs and so i think at some early point they got sufficiently captivated by film that they started thinking in terms of films but they're also heavily into you know the literary aspects you know one of their other training things that they did when they were young filmmakers was what they called 10 minute movies and it was all an exercise in learning how to plot and how to create characters fast and they would just it would be literally in 10 minutes so that's 10 pages 10 page scripts and they would do just generate them as fast as they could generate them um and i think the idea was we just want to get so good at conceiving characters and plots that will always have a backlog and indeed that's how they write while they're writing one if they get it all stuck they'll have, be writing another at the same time you know at different levels of progress they always have backup scripts they've often gone back to scripts that have been sitting in a drawer um for years and they wait until an actor that they sometimes they write a role just for an actor like john goodman or someone and they wait till john goodman is free and pull it out of the drawer. So that's another very practical way they've gone about making sure they're eminently hireable and <laughs> worth the money and all the rest of it. So I think they've, they've found a way to balance both both of these drives pretty thoroughly in films. And it's great for me because I always think one of the, one of the huge weaknesses of American films is how rote the scripts are. You really can't attack American films on on the dull conventions that have taken hold as far as script writing, which we've got some illusion that, that that makes them realistic. And it's like people don't even listen to the way other people talk in America or anywhere. Because if you actually listen to the way people talk, a lot of them anyway, the Coens are closer than the kind of weirdly flattened, um, cliched uh, scripts that you hear. So people are a lot more weird and, and idiosyncratic and colorful in their speech than people acknowledge. But isn't it partially because most screenwriters live in LA and are friends with other screenwriters and actors and whatnot? Yeah, I think so. 
in the film industry in America, you're high pressured into the conventions that exist. So if you do anything that goes outside of it and you've got no power, you've got no reputation, you're just trying to make it, all the notes that come back are trying to get you to conform to the way it's supposed to be done. Um, So I think we weed out people who would have a much better take on what people talk like anyway. Yeah, who might come from the people and not just who live in L.A. bubble. Exactly. No, and we've got that terrible L.A.-centric thing. You know, all all the shooting that goes on in and around L.A., which makes sense. It's a company town. There's also runaway production, but a ton of stuff goes on in L.A. And the Coens, one of the first things I noticed about their films is it looked like they were actually at a real place that wasn't L.A. standing in for a real place. I mean, how many forest shots have taken place in Griffith Griffith Park in L.A.? Griffith Park has, you know, spindly California, you know, thin pine growth. It doesn't look like, you know, rich eastern forests. you got to go there. So the the insistent regionalism of the Coens, and they attach language to it, they attach, you know, they tend to go, you know, if you wanted to argue for how, especially in their early films, they defined how they were going to approach location and character it was you start with the geography it's often going to be harsh geography minnesota snow uh, west desert hot scrubland then you go to the culture that arises from that harsh landscape it too is going to be harsh probably not that beautiful and then you go to the characters that arise out of that culture and they're all tied together and so that kind of particularity of place and language and the types of people and all that, that was the first thing that struck me about the Coens is like, God, this is great. Just to not feel like what you just said. Uh, we're in our L.A. again and it's Californians. and all the Everyone's talking the same. And yeah, that's one of their great contributions, I think. It's interesting the way you describe their process. Almost sounds clinical, like social anthropology mm-hmm. at its best. Well, and it's, you know, admittedly, and it's most um, imaginary. You know, they don't mind at all when they when they were shooting in, I don't know, I forget, Texas, the first for their first film, Blood Simple. And they said, well, it's kind of a Texas of the mind because, you know, they were admitting, we don't know Texas. Texas of the we mind. know Texas through the pop culture, what artifacts that tell us what Texas is about. And in Texas, <laughs> you've got a lot of harsh characters who uh, who are have you know who reach for guns automatically where there's a lot of hot melodrama you know there's a million movies and a million books about those qualities of texas that they take and then kind of blow up so they're always working in a kind of halfway point between what they know historically what they know through you know what's refracted through popular culture and you know what they can observe it's always this this, this this combination you know they're very exacting for example about locations so they find these very specific locations so that's a kind of documentary quality to certain aspects that they can then take off from into a fantastical myth-making meditation on those elements so we kind of got to factor all that in together it's immensely complicated their approach i think well, it's hard even to conceive. Yeah, they're the opposite of the naturalistic. I'm just we're just gonna go and let the camera run and capture in you know long, deep focus, long takes, you know, so we can discover what the real relationship of the people is to the landscape. You know, a kind of Italian neorealism kind of thing. That's definitely the opposite of their impulse. And yet they're probably more successful than those naturalist type of filmmakers. They get at some truth. Well, especially if you regard. Realism and naturalism is just another style, which I, I tend to myself. I mean, film is such a 
such an arduous construct. It's such a, even when you're trying to be simple at a low budget level, it's so many people and it's so much work and it's so much equipment. And it's, there's, there's how you make that into just, it's just, let's just treat it as a natural, (laughs) I don't know, phenomenon that we're recording. I don't even know how that's possible, but maybe that was my experience of filmmaking, even at a low budget level. It was still, Jesus, we need that many trucks and that many people and that much equipment. It was insane. It was like the circus comes to town. Yeah, but even if you think about the documentary, so-called documentary filmmaking, that sometimes can be done with two people. What is natural exactly. is still some sort of construct, even if it is one if camera. If you study documentary, that's the burning question. How do you ever get to objective, natural, real filmmaking? You're still setting up a shot that excludes all the other shots. Yeah. You're still making that cut there. Of course. You know, you still shaped it. Yeah, so the Collins way might be the truest. Oh, God, I don't know. It's it's certainly not for everybody. I mean, I have to say that often. People come up, you know, now that I'm sort of, I've raved about them so much, people kind of associate me with with the films and they'll come and say, I don't I don't know why you like them. And I'll have to try to defend them. And I've just gotten to the point that I just say, yeah, they're just not for everybody. <laughs> they're kind of a specialized taste. Yeah, would that it were so simple? Yes, would that it were so simple? God, I quote that now all the time. I think in that, what did you say? Would that it were so simple? Is that what it was? Would that it were so simple? Would that it were so simple? We can't get it right. We're reenacting the movie. Oh my God, we're reenacting Hail Caesar. I I know, but I was thinking about it. Speaking of their literary qualities, that that's that's that that could have been easily like a grade five pages in the book. Oh yeah, I mean that 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 scene of trying to record that. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can kind of feel the words on the page a little bit, which again, I don't think they. I don't think they find that to be a weakness. Other people might. As you say, it feels constructed. I don't think they mind that it feels constructed. It still has power for a lot of people. So as long as it does that. It does. Okay, let's try to segue talking about later films of the Coens. And by later, I would say the films that come after No Country for Old Men, which was probably their most successful Mm -hmm. film with um, that got them... I think multiple Oscars, right? Best directors. I don't know, basically multiple Oscars. I think they got best... Wait a minute. They got they got best supporting actor, best director, best best film. Javier Bardem got best supporting actor. And I think there's another one. There's one other. But yeah, they really... And that's, at this point anyway, Fargo used to be the one that everyone had heard of. And probably now, No Country for Old Men is the one. Than most people would have heard. Yeah, of. so that's sort of like a pinnacle. Yeah. Uh huh. So and and it seems like some critics or people generally say that afterwards they sort of <laughs> went downhill from there, and their movies are weird and. Yeah, they do that every 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 time. Sometimes you think they're they're shooting themselves in the foot on purpose, like they have some strange compulsion not to become mainstream, even though they claim they have always been trying to sell out, but they. When they do things like right after Fargo is this colossal hit, instead of making another sort of Fargo-like film, they made The Big Lebowski, which now we think of as a great film. Then it then it did badly. It only made its money back through DVD sales afterward when it became a kind of cult fixation. But at first it was considered this crazy, like, why would you follow up Fargo with this thing that nobody even knows what it is? So, yeah, they kind of do that with No Country for Old Men. Why not continue in this kind of grave Cormac McCarthy (laughs) being solemn in many ways about 
you know, the loss of Western, the, you know, this kind of Western ideal, blah, 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 but that kind of, you know, harrowing blackness of modernity and all that. Why not go on doing that since it seems to have struck a real chord? You could go on adapting Cormac McCarthy novels probably. But instead, what do they do? They True Grit, which was reviewed by a lot of people as, you know, the remake nobody wanted because the John Wayne one is well known. Of course, they claim to have gone back to the novel by Charles Portis and not be not be doing a remake. But still, odd. it's an odd move to make. What else do they do? Inside Lewin Davis. So they do the 1960s, early 60s folk music scene from Greenwich Village without, without before Bob Dylan. In other words, before the point when everybody knows about it, or at least a lot of people know about it, it ends when Bob Dylan takes the stage and folk music becomes a big thing. And it's a movie about a, a failed folk singer who stays stays failed. I mean, uh, yeah. So they make a series of choices. What else do they do? Hail Caesar, which, you know, it has these larky interludes, these fun, you know, tap dancing sailor homoerotic tap dancing sailors and you know ways of evoking old hollywood but i was in the theater and you could just feel like for the first quarter of the film everyone's enjoying it and laughing and then just the <laughs> just the the whole enthusiasm for it just drained right out of the middle of the film when you start taking on you know commun you know hollywood communists <laughs> you just get into these the weeds in a way that a lot of people were just like what is this movie supposed to be and why would you make it um am i missing one is there another uh no i just wanted to stop on hail caesar so so you think that people were weirded out by the communist narrative I, well i think i'm just judging by the kind of mixed reviews that seem kind of puzzled by yeah yeah that part was really funny or that performance was really good but huh. man, this didn't work very well i just and just judging by my own experience in the theater where you really went into the doldrums as you got into you know james brolin as you know based on an actual real a rule of character eddie mannix was the fix the so-called goon-like fixer at uh mgm for a long time um that he's somehow he's this stone-faced guy who's just trying to decide if he should stay working in hollywood which is so hard for him even though he's breaking faces and you know manipulating everybody but he's this devout catholic and he's so he's always going to confession every day and crying and carrying on and his other option is to go work for lockheed mark martin and working on armageddon as he says and and, you know, and then there's this wild mix of these communists, these communist screenwriters. That's a way of kind of, you know, making fun of a very dangerous thing to do among lefties, um, making fun of the whole black pre-blacklist period where, you know, the sense is that, that they... They conveyed by the Coens, the jokey sense is that the screenwriters really are planting pro communist propaganda into all their scripts, which was the accusation made against the Hollywood Ten. Um, so that's that's a very touchy subject on the left, and the Coens just, in typical irreverent fashion, just throw that into the mix too. And there's just so much going on that it's not just funny like water ballet musicals and things that maybe people could associate. Oh yeah, that's right. Old Hollywood did crazy stuff like that. There's so much more going on that I think it just lost a lot of people. Yeah, I see. Because I, I love that movie. I do too. I, I adored it. But it was I felt, as I often feel like with Ghost, it was just made for me personally. And I, was, I remember sitting there thinking, who is this for? <laughs> I mean, I love it, but I know everything. I even know all the scandals they're talking about. There are all these references in the film to actual Hollywood scandals. I know them all. 
but nobody else who else would know them? <laughs> they're just crazy you know there's a rumor that clark gable had starred in a porn film when he was a young struggling actor so that whole thing with baird whitlock george clooney's character where every time as, uh, on wings as eagles is mentioned <laughs> that's that's the implication that it was a porn film he starred in before he was famous and he'd be ruined if the gossip columnists reveal it. <laughs> I know that, but who the hell else knows that? So sometimes I just sit there going, God, Coen brothers, who are you making films for other than yourselves? And I think they've been able to make films for themselves. I mean, someone, I forget who it was, who works with them said, look, you know what they care about as far as opinions on their films joel cares what ethan thinks and ethan cares what joel thinks and that's it <laughs> well that's that's envious <laughs> it's isn't it it's like a dream life it's a dream life yeah okay what about the inside loon devis the film before i think hell caesar why did they decide to ponder again on, on this the american life? failure question <laughs> yeah and yeah and why take on yeah, a, a world where you could have represented the brief triumphal period of folk music that had a lot of influence if you'd just gone with Post Dylan. Why go <laughs> for, especially because, you know, the, the, the kind of catalyst, and they do this apparently, this is part of their process, which you mentioned, is they tend to go from a scene or an idea for a scene, and then they start working their way outward. So they told the press that their idea was, Suppose Dave Van Rock, who is a, a major folk singer, maybe one of the biggest, but of course in a tiny world, not really known by the mainstream audience, before Dylan came along. Dylan said his biggest goal at the time was to be as big as Dave Van Rock. And they were going to make it, Dave Van Rock gets beat up in an alley outside of, I forget the name of the folk, folk music venue in Greenwich Village. And that was the catalyst. And they were going to hire a guy who was a big shambling dude who looked like Dave Van Rock. And they were going to use Dave Van Rock's music. And they were really going to do a lot with Dave Van Rock. Well, they wound up dropping that. They found finally found an actor who could play guitar brilliantly. They needed someone who could do both. They got Oscar Isaac. And so they sort of rethought it. And they'd already kind of moved away from really making it you know, biographical in any way, which really pissed off his, his widow. She went to the movie and was furious and wrote up and wrote up you know, letter to the editor, kind of, well, editorial, I guess, um, furious, um, condemning the film for, you know, doing nothing about how, what a great time it was, how great Dave and Ronk was, all that stuff. She didn't really understand what they were doing. So instead, they, they've got this other guy who's never even going to be as successful as Dave and Ronk. They've got this guy who's all obstreperous and desperate. He's a very serious musician. He's talented. You know, for a lot of people, they seem to assume that he, the, the message must be, Lewin Davis was never talented, and that's why he didn't make it. That's not the message. Uh, the message is he's he's very into his music, and that whole the the whole the, the music is handled seriously, and we see many of the numbers come uh, like performed in their entirety. So we can see how it relates to who he actually is. That's where he reveals who he actually um, is. But he's so again, he's paranoid. He's a kind of prickly loner. Um, he lights into anyone who isn't as, you know, kind of somewhat pompously serious about music as he is. He has a love-hate relationship with folk music. He's mean to other folk musicians. <laughs> he, he does everything to undercut his own success. And he just seems to have the black spot on him. He's a kind of doomed to failure figure. And I was at a screening with, that Oscar Isaac attended and someone at the end in the Q&I period said, well, but aren't we supposed to think that at the end when Dylan, we see Dylan come on stage and 
Lewin Davis is in the alley, that Dylan's success will mean Oscar, will mean Lewin Davis succeeds afterward, after the movie's over. <laughs> and Oscar David, Oscar, I'm sorry, Oscar Isaac says, no, he's like on a hamster wheel. He's going to wind up giving guitar lessons in, in Greenwich Village. He's not going to, he's not going to be a big success, but it was so telling about, and that was another audience that loved it at first and then just got more and more quiet and, and and depressed as the movie went along. And it was such a perfect portrait of Americans. Like, we can't stand to see failure even in a movie. <laughs> He's got to succeed somehow. And they just, they don't want to ponder that. I think there's good reason why we don't want to ponder that because we're a culture where we very much are aware we have no one but ourselves to blame because supposedly we're living in a meritocracy based on the individual and with hard work anyone can go as high as they want to you could be the president all that kind of rhetoric that we take seriously in some level. yeah but i don't know if i'm reading into it. there's that of course but what about just the general idea of the um, making it as an artist, which is outside of American culture, any culture is a pretty individual kind of pursuit. And those who fail, it's kind of interesting to look. I, I mean, I like to think the movie isn't why they fail when they're really gifted. There's no reason. Yeah. There's so much this terrible chance luck thing going on that's horrifyingly uncertain and unfair i mean dave van ronk was a genius i think i think i think they think if you're going to go back to at least the roots of the story and you know he goes through periods where he can't afford to buy a hamburger i mean he's he's he goes through serious periods of terrible poverty and waxing and waning of success and he's never a big name compared to dylan almost nobody is but i think the coens would be sort of hinting was there ever a greater <laughs> um, folk musician than Dave Van Rock? I, being great is no guarantee. And that might be where, where you're right, where, where they're at. Like, you can be as great as you want, but if you can't figure out how to monetize it, <laughs> is anyone ever going to hear of you? I mean, maybe if you're lucky, if you're Robert Johnson, you know, you're going to somehow become such a legend that people, you know, they pay tribute to him, obviously, in, a, in a, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, um, people are going to hear of you even if you died very, very young and recorded very few records and didn't have a huge amount of success. But that's unusual. It's mostly fa and absolutely fantastically talented people who are lost to obscurity because they didn't get the incredible charmed life and break. It's got to haunt the Coens, I sometimes think. Well, maybe they're too well adjusted, but haunt them that they had every lucky break. I mean, I mean my favorite story I love to tell about how lucky they were. They're coming up. They're kids, basically, right out of college. Joel knows somebody he's going to ask to shoot a little footage so that they can use to raise money for Blood Simple. He asks his friend, I think, I think they were both at NYU, and the friend's name is Barry Sonnenfeld. So Barry Sonnenfeld, who goes on, of course, to be a very, very successful director in his own right, with Adam's family and stuff like that, becomes their cinematographer. He's super talented. Carter Burwell composer they ask him to do the comp compose for blood simple they like him they go on together now he's this recognized genius in composition uh when they wanted to cast the female lead in blood simple they asked their friend holly hunter an up-and-coming um broadway actress she had was busy couldn't do it she recommended her her roommate guess who francis mcdormand 
you know, they meet Sam Raimi when he's nobody and he becomes hugely successful and Tep helps carry them up. What are the odds? I, it's insane. It's just like everywhere they turn. Back to the Old Testament thing. God is with them. They're the chosen. Somehow God is with <laughs> them. It's maddening. It is a maddening, maddening thing. It's just like, why? But there isn't any answer no. that humans can really know. I like why. the fact that they also, like, not to braggy about it. Like, it seems like they're surprised as much as everyone else, I guess. Right. And I think they tried, they seem to try very hard to hang on to this very self-deprecating language about the experience. They they really try to keep a lid on, yeah, um, people being too odd and making too much of them i think i think that may be part of a, a kind of sanity they exude <laughs> yeah but also not to you know angry the god not to jinx it exactly not to jinx it because you know <laughs> if we're gonna balance the universe they're gonna have to really have some horrible late life years <laughs> to make up for all that all that good fortune Let's not jinx them. Let's, let's not jinx them. No, no, no. We're not oh, doing we're that. On that. I'm going to yes, knock on the wood, I'm, as I'm Russians there. do. I'm knocking there. right now. <laughs> yeah, okay. So um, just to, I guess, to try, <laughs> to try to wrap it up in a way, I'm going back to the Buster Scruggs. I mean, I loved it. It was a, an amazing experience watching it in the movie theater for me. But I did come out of the movie theater thinking that is the film that is removed from life immediate life even more than most of their others the way the ontology worked it's so it almost was like a just again some sort of novel or mark twain like mm -hmm. fable or something which makes me think are they ready almost to retire because it sort of seemed like old man stuff <laughs> i don't know how better to put it. it it was obviously genius and and entertaining still but there is like was a feeling of some kind of close retirement um They've threatened to retire, you know. They've been doing that off and on for about 10 years, sort of hinting that they might this might be their last one and then they always come back. I mean, you're right. It's a, it's an unusual film in that it, it they make it apparent that it's it's a kind of hermetically sealed presentation with that book that you open and then you close and it's an old mm -hmm. clearly an old book. It's like something like 1910 or something. It's early 19th century. I mean, early yeah, 20th century kind of look to the cloth-bound book. Yeah, it, and this hearkening back in a way that you could read is nostalgia. These are people who just want to wallow around in a genre that most people would say, even if it's very influential and there are elements in action film and science fiction and lots of other things, um, it's it's pretty much a dead genre with only an occasional Western cropping up every several years. So are they just doing this kind of heading into their dotage? We just, we just want to really <laughs> want to really live in a in a sealed off world of a preferred past or something like that. I think I'm a little skewed in my own take just because, because I've taught the, what I regard as the films that precede this one, you know, all their Western noir films in a row. And this seems to be a fitting co continuation. So it's kind of doesn't strike me as what I tend to associate with kind of, if I could be so cruel, old man directing choices is that they become vaguer kind of sloppier kind of smudged vert like if you look at later hitchcock it's starting to get the sharpness is all going the the defined absolutely defined qualities of formal qualities are starting to all loosen up and get vague it al they almost start to look like somebody's imitating not that well hitchcock films i mean I'm talking about his way late career where 
films to me almost get unwatchable because he's you could just so clearly see he's losing his powers and some things are getting sort of pale and smudged and and undistinct and this is the opposite of that it's in, almost insanely dist- <laughs> distinct in its all of its formal all the themes are kind of distilled yeah. in there and crystallized and the language seems even more <laughs> the kind of hilarious western influenced slang that that they have always done yeah. you know just the things you can hardly follow <laughs> she hadn't auto have did it you know it's just he's very very outrageously Cohen-esque pan shot you know that crazy banker with wearing the pans screaming and there's just all of the kind of extremes of language and visuals um that they've always done well but at the same time this sense of really intense control and discipline so that you know more extreme things that happen physically seem hilariously choreographed or tragically choreographed in the case of the gal who got rattled yeah that was very sharp very the the rhythm of the editing is staying so tight so sharp it's like tight as a drum these the, the films that they make even if you think well i didn't get that one with james franco that seems to have been the very least favorite um i love it because it it it's part of that early we're treating everything super humorously and the, and the whole little film is like a shaggy dog story one of those very long jokes where you're just trying to get to the punchline let's see about the guy who's been being hanged for the second time and he says to the crying guy on the gallows with him first time huh the whole movie just seems an elaborate setup so he can say that that line on the gallows but you know so the and the kind of loony minor characters like that banker like you know, played by the great Stephen Root, who seems to be, be becoming another favorite of the Coens. He keeps re- they keep recasting him, saying, "Banking, crazy business." <laughs> like the business is the least crazy, <laughs> as in most people's heads. So there's so much of the Cohen esque that just, but it isn't moving towards someone's imitating the Coens. It seems more and more intensely, you know, them like their work. The only films they've ever done that have that weird. Is it them or is it someone imitating them not very well are the least talked about by anyone, including me, Intolerable Cruelty and The Lady Killers. Mm-hmm. Both seem kind of like, well, sort of cones, but those are the only ones I can think of. And certainly Buster, Buster Scruggs seems really sharply on point, whether you like it or not, and what the hell they think they're doing if they care about commercial success, doing a bunch of oldie-timey <laughs> tales of the West. I have no idea. But they've always made those kind of choices where you're just like, what are you thinking? And they always make enough money to do it again. But it's a good question. Like, what do we associate with the old man? Yeah, well, like what kind of filmmaking is the old man filmmaking, I guess? You might have a sense of it that I don't. I guess when you start repeating your own themes, but they become washed out. Exactly. You're hitting the same note. Oh, I think that's exactly right. There's a great example of that. Howard Hawks is an old, you know, really giant filmmaker of the classic era and by the time he gets to the 60s, he's he's essentially remaking, reshooting whole scenes that he did previously, but he did them perfectly the first time, and now they're really slow. The the editing is really slack. You're just like, what are you doing, man? You're you're making it looks so bad. You're 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 reshooting something you did perfectly the first time, and now you can't do it anymore. And the worst thing, he was too famous and successful for anyone to tell oh, him exactly <laughs> to stop. Yeah, that's I, that's to I think yeah. <laughs> I think that's the scary part. Once you're up there, no one dares to tell you <laughs> that you're repeating yourself. I think I read Haneke has this fear. Oh, really? <laughs> that no one will tell him when to stop. Yeah, that's what I read in his yeah. interview. 
that just because of your sort of success and respect that you have no one really tells oh, you exactly. the truth and at some point you have you want to hear it probably yeah but anyway with with coins it seems like yeah they're very sharp but just one thing it seemed that all the, their themes were in this little loose tales and it's so kind of distilled and well done that it just seemed like can be potentially a good closing but but doesn't have to be right that's true it could be we we don't know that for for the first time ever remember we we tried to look up what their next project was there's no usually there's some loose mm-hmm. thing they'll sort of say oh yeah we're working on like when they were going to do no uh the man who wasn't there they'd say yeah we're working on a film about a barber who wants to be a dry cleaner <laughs> they would tell the press <laughs> just the worst log line in the world <laughs> Um, which they clearly knew was funny, but I mean, they've all—I've always gone to see the next thing, and there's always been something, and I didn't see anything this time. And now, nothing. Well, we'll see. I guess we'll wait and see. We'll see. We try not to jinx them, so we wish them many happy returns. I guess definitely many more films. My hopes, as always, are pinned on them for American cinema. Are there any airs? Oh God, no! I've never seen a Cohen air. No, I never have. I mean, not that there are talented filmmakers. I just, not, they're not like the cons. I used to hope for that when they were, you know, young to mid-career kind of thing. And I've just never seen anyone who, you can see sometimes things that are kind of derivative. You can see them kind of trying to be in the same um, area, but I've just never seen anyone that's much like them. And that makes sense. Why would they be? The Coens have clearly have their own fixations <laughs> Or at least pleasures that they're working yeah. out and returning to over and over that ah, it would be hard to share that with other people. I mean, even when I watch Fargo, the TV show, it's a little bit like, I mean, I've, I've liked it. I've been surprised that I've liked it as much as I've had, at least the first couple of seasons I liked. I'm kind of behind, but there's an awful lot of citations to the Coens and chapter and versing of things the Coens would do that sometimes makes me a little uneasy. Just like, yeah, wouldn't it be better just to kind of take off once you... Once you've got going, kind of leave the Coens behind. But yeah, they don't. Yeah. Okay, we covered a lot of ground. Oh, we were going to name, in honor of the new year, we were going to name our favorite films of the year. And ironically, it turned out we have the same four four films to recommend from 2018, which are the favorite. Death of Stalin. Obviously, Buster Scruggs. And Sorry to Bother You. Those four. We will vouch for. So this was the special film sack episode on the films of the Coen brothers. And if you enjoyed it, please subscribe to our bi-monthly podcast through Patreon. And see you in 2019.